0: The cry of Morgoth in that hour was the greatest and most dreadful that was ever heard in the northern world. In
1: that hour was made a darkness, that seemed not lack, but a thing with being of its own, for it was indeed made by malice out of light. The cry of Morgoth in that hour was the greatest and most dreadful that was ever heard in the northern world. In that hour was made a darkness that seemed not light, but a thing with being of its own, for it was indeed made by malice out of light. The cry of Morgoth in that hour was the greatest and most dreadful that was ever heard in the northern world.
0: This is transmission three of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. This episode features. A chat with my good friend Cat Vincent, the Fortean scholar and expert now on Slenderman, amongst other things. We will dissect and analyze the hyperreal condition, hyperreal religions, metafictional entities. Look at things like why the Jedi's have taken off, but there's no cult of the Batman. Discuss super grinder new gods and generally have a good chat. Now it's been six months since the last podcast and what actually happened was I kind of took the chat with Gordon in the last episode at his word. He said go out and roll your own culture and that's what I've been doing and instead of making long Podcasts. I've been writing long newsletters on the the Extinction Club website. And so I've decided now to bring the podcast back, merge the two things together as one ongoing, multifaceted, double-dimensional entity, as the worst Nathan Barley in the world, for those who have seen that show, and combine the two things together So that sometimes on the podcast I will do in-depth interviews with scientists to look at various aspects of rewilding, of trophic cascade, of predators being reintroduced into habitats, or just do straight-up book reviews. Right now I'm reading Pat Shipman's The Invaders, mostly with Shiva. Say hello, Shiva. Shiva, speak. Shiva is asleep. And sometimes we will interview authors, cultural critics, interesting people from the internet, and find an intersection and commonality that you would not really expect unless you were listening to this podcast. The tagline now is Field Reports from the Science Fictional Condition. And you know, sometimes that means resurrecting extinct species, sometimes that means totally geeking out on a pop culture time travel show, sometimes that means looking at weird steampunk megafauna, truck sexual, I'm just reeling off some of the people I have in mind, no pirates. No pirates. And we'll go from there. That's the new plan. And uh, I hope you like it. And I, what I like about the podcast and newsletters is it is direct communication between a creator and the audience. So this goes straight to your iPod. The newsletter goes straight to your email. And then if you want to share it on social media, reblog it go crazy, or not. So yes. So now, we begin our discussion with Cat. Welcome to the show, Cat. Because it's a show.
1: It's a show. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Yes, I am that old,
0: Emerson Lake and Palmer, kids. So we're going to talk things hyperreal, and maybe magical reality too. How does that sound? Oh yeah. Sounds good to me. Excellent.
1: Uh, I, I don't know how you want to like lead into everything. You might want to sort of intro hyperreal fairly quickly, so that we have context. Yeah.
0: Dot dot dot. So, Kat, how would you define hyperreal?
1: Yeah, we're so fucking professional <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, around <clears throat> here. Well, this this is how it happened, Mikey. Uh
0: huh. Tell me.
1: Um, I've always had this fascination with how um, fiction can often be a better way of expressing certain truths than non-fiction. Uh, in going back to, you know, as, as as a kid, there was a lot of times when I was growing up as a young, weird shit enthusiast in the wildernesses before the internet, where it was just your local library and then eventually bumping into people in science fiction fandom who were also occultists. But just finding that the metaphors of um, classical occultism, with metaphors of their time, you know, that they're from specific time and place and people and, and headset. Um, that background flavour just isn't what we have now. Um, so when I was, I guess I was about 10 or 11, I first got my hands on Robert Anton Wilson, and especially Cosmic Trigger, which, of course, gives the idea that, yeah, they are all metaphors. What we're talking about here is something so fundamentally weird. Human language really doesn't have a vocabulary for it. But every now and then, as, as the Zen masters say, all you can do is point. And there are points, there are pointers in fiction, which can be really profound because they have that emotional vestment with them. And you look at it and go, oh, my God, that it's, it's like having a chunk of your own mind explained to you by someone else. And this happens so often with it being a fictional quote, be it from Star Wars or Babylon 5 or Terry Pratchett. God love him. He did that all the bloody time. Um, And around about 2007, I actually did look it up before this, and the article went live on Halloween of 2007, uh, on the excellent uh, website Theofontostique.com which specialises in talking about the crossover of religion and popular culture. And they have this interview with an Australian sociologist of religion called Adam Possumai, who had just um, released a small book talking about his own theories of what he called hyperreal religion. Um, the term hyperreal is one he nicked from Baudrillard. Uh, Jean Baudrillard, of course, best known for simulation and simulacrum a book which turns up in The Matrix in a small world. And his basic idea is that um, modern human society is so, to use a pun which I continually use and will keep doing so until my grave, symbol-minded, that we just can't, at this point, easily distinguish between a symbol for something that did once exist, what he called simulation, and a simulate crap, which is a symbol for something which never existed. It's just something that came out of language and context. And we have a symbol for the thing. Um, But there was never any original. It's not a copy of a copy of a copy. It's a copy of something someone made up. Umberto Eco, in his thing about hyperreal and Disneyland, used a lovely phrase. uh, It's a handy one for this. The hyperreal is the authentic fake. And I read this, I thought, that is such a good model for describing this. And he was specifically talking about the rise in interest in Jedi Knights as a religion, and also Matrixism, which is not quite so heard of these days. But there was a whole strong theological aspect of those sort of Matrix. And, and Possum, I started researching these cultures and looking into it in, in terms of how to things like Live-action role-play obviously has, has a certain role here. But he was seeing it as a, as, a, as a viable theological pursuit because there's elements of this all over the place. There's vast elements of fiction bleed over in paganism, as, well, as I've talked about before. And even orthodox religions will often go to the wool we'll nicker metaphor You've seen some of those church signs. they have those kind of whimsical-looking church posters outside of certain Christian venues where they're trying to get the flock in. And they'll make, like, a, a, a reference about some pop culture thing. They did lots of Matrix ones with that at the time. And, I, you know, you'd go past them now and they'd have a, a bluish white Christmasy looking thing with snowflakes on it and about You know, your sins, let it go. Uh, so, there's always been this sense in which fiction will inform theology. But Possum, took it further and say that it's completely viable in a postmodern world, in a world of simulation and simulacra, to have a valid religious experience which you codify purely in terms of the fictional belief system. And there were more and more people doing this. And there's also a backlash, interestingly, where you have what he called hypo religion, hypo real religion which is when you get the pushback from the orthodoxy, where you get Christians burning books when you get Muslims.
0: So that's that's Christians burning Harry Potter, basically.
1: Yeah, exactly that. What they're doing is they'll either reject the fictional realms entirely, or they'll try and subvert them, like, say, Jack Chick comics, which are a great example of, of, of how they try and suborn those fictional tropes and use them to their own ends. Um and yeah, what it comes down to and for, for me, I mean, my, my perspective is kind of as a big Robert Anton Wilson fan in the day, and I'll, he'll always have a place in my, in my brain, of just the idea that any kind of weird shit experience gets filtered through your belief system, gets filtered through the symbols which you've come across uh, all your life. And some will trigger for you that I won't trigger for other people, but there's a commonality in using a pop culture one so that you can say Dalok and of Tanagra, and people go, I know exactly what you mean, as long as they've actually seen the Star Trek episode. But, you, it, again, it gives, you, it gives you potentially of a shared mythology, yeah. which is easy to transmit. It's easy to get the tchotchkes for, for your altar. Um, I'm looking over at my altar now. What have I got my altar? I have got Sauron, Ganesh, and Kali. I've got Kosh from Babylon 5. I've got John Constantine, I've got Byron Orpheus from the Venture Brothers, um, and I've got the Idic from Star Trek, wow. which I've talked about before in the pagan thing. Um, and I don't for a second believe that these are real gods in any way, shape or form. But I do believe that they can be seen as psychopombs at the very worst. That they're part of how the... Going for the computer metaphor here, if you think about what the universe actually does as the hardware and the software of your computer, all we can do at our end is fiddle with what the desktop looks like. We can can change the icons, we can have a nice wallpaper. These we can change, and these have personal significance to us, and it helps us find things easier, and it helps us feel comfortable and connected when we sit down in front of the lappy. But they're not the operating system. They're just our symbols for the user interface to the operating system. So I, I think you can be really quite liberal in choosing those, but the trick is not to believe in them in the sense that a formal religion would. The quote, which I, again, hammer into the ground with anybody I talk to about this, which I first read in um, Patrick Harper's book, Diamonic Reality, but I think originally came from Austin Osman Spare, which is when you're talking about any kind of weird shit phenomena, you have to treat it as if it was real, not as real. If you treat it as real, then that's truth. That becomes a single monolithic truth for you, and you can't step away from it. Once you do, you've left that truth behind. It, it's on off. If you treat it as if real, you, there's a kind of rheostat in there. You can turn down how much validity you're placing to it. You can say, right, today I'm going to treat the idea of the goddess Eris or Discordia as absolutely real and see what that does to me. I don't advise this for newcomers, by the way. <laughs> just, just don't. Start easy. Um, and then you dial it back and you can go back and it's that kind of chaos magic technique of where you believe really fervently in something and then you can step away for a while and, and kind of analyse it. Which is fine, and again, but it's also a dualistic trope. The fun thing is where you kind of half believe in it, and you, get, you have a day and you have like a synchronicity, and you think, oh my god, that's just, that's so Dr. Orpheus. That's so fitting. Or that is just like something that would fit into. When I was in my mid 20s, living in London and this little museum, working at Her Majesty's Treasury. I went through a long period of um, looking at Sufi tropes and, and beliefs. Uh, got into it through Idris Shah, which is not the most historically valid of sources, shall we say. But for a long time, I was doing workings based on the Sufi trickster God Khadir. Salaam Alaikum. You have to say that when you say his name, uh, just in case. And for a long period, I had this occasional feeling that Khadir was looking at me. And he's an interesting character because he's the closest thing Islam has to a trickster god. The legend, he's mentioned vaguely in the Quran, but there's a whole bunch of um, legends about him in the Hadith. Uh, The main one of which is that he started out as Alexander the Great's cook when Alexander was trying to find the fountain of youth. Alexander failed, but when Kabir was off trying to find some um, food in the jungle, he found the fountain of life. Drank some and then ran away, because he really don't want Alexander the Great to be immortal. And, yeah, he, he's, there's a whole section of fascinating teaching stories around Kadir, and he occupies roughly the same position as as any other trickster god. The tales bear strong resemblance to teaching stories about Anansi, or High John the Conqueror, or Jack the Giant Killer. They've all got that same kind of... The small, smart, cunning man—pun possibly intended—and so I was doing lots of, lots of work and uh, magical um, rituals in, in the kind of classic chaosy form to try and work with Kadir when I was in London. And there were a couple of times when I swear I saw him looking at me through the eyes of ominous guy walking past. They just kind of give me the nod in a really interesting and creepy way. And it's like it's like that time Alan Moore said he met John Constantine. And if we're going to talk about how um, a fictional entity can enter into the real world, John Constantine is a bloody good example because Alan Moore isn't the only person to have seen him. Pretty much every creator who worked on the book had a thing of, oh, fuck me, that's John Constantine, just come out of the corner. Jamie Delano had it, Brian Azzarello had it, uh, Pick Milligan had it, a whole bunch of them. Um, but the canonical one is when Alan I uh, saw him in this sandwich shop on the, oh, God, it was. Well, we'll do something, I think, west uh, on, on the uh, South Bank. Uh, do you a guy? And, and 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 as he tells her, it, it wasn't that he just looked like Sting. He really looked like John Constantine, and I thought, should I follow him round the corner? But I thought better of it. And um, you know, that's most people's reaction is look, would you really want to engage John Constantine in conversation? Would you want him to be your friend?
0: No, probably not.
1: So, yeah, <laughs> so after all of that sizable um, sidebar, um, this model of, of hyper religion is a very handy one to look at um, the rise of these things, particularly with something like um, the Jedi beliefs, because of course. They're this mess of white, boy, Californian Orange County cultural appropriation of everything that got sucked over to the West in the 60s. There's a bit of Zen in there, there's a bit of Tao in there, there's a bit of Hinduism in there, there's a bit of Tantra. It's all very second and third hand. And people say, but but, but that weakens it. No, because clearly it works well enough for, in the 2001 British census, the first one ever to actually ask the religion question in the United Kingdom, Canada and Australia, the Jedi were the fourth largest religion. I think it fell to fifth in the most recent one. But that was still, they were showing something like 400,000 claimed demons. Now, obviously, a bunch of them were, you know, taking a piss. Some of them were atheists, making a point. But some of them were absolutely sincere. And then when you get incidents where one of the Jedi goes into a job centre and he's got the robot and he's got the hood up, and they ask him kindly to put the hood down so that the CCTVs can see his face, and he says, no, I'm sorry, that's against my religion. And they throw him out. And he writes to them, saying that you've infringed my religion. I am going to bring a suit against you on a human rights basis. And they found in his favour. This was around the same time that a, I think she was a Catholic nurse, was suing the NHS because they wouldn't let her wear her crucifix at work, uh, presumably at least partly for health and safety reasons. But she lost her case, and the Jedi won his, The funny thing is that later on, Parliament actually pushed through a law saying that in future, human rights claims could not be made by certain specific groups. And on that list were Jedi, Scientologists, and religions that advocate child abuse and Satanism. That's a really interesting list.
0: So picking up, on the themes from the previous episode with Gordon, I thought the Babylon 5 rangers...
1: Oh, yeah. Um, when the A.V. Club, a few months back, were finishing up their full retrospective, they reviewed every episode, but in the last season, they didn't have quite as much money to pay the writer. Roman Kaiser, who's a lovely bloke. Um, so the kind of squishing them down to three or four episodes at once and he did this quite lengthy thing of explaining just what a bad idea the Rangers were in terms of being a symbol of Western neoliberal interventionism. It's kind of like the pure white hand of power. They just wade in and they're so honorable and they're so good. Um, They are the knights of the round table and that's a fair point if you actually, you know, if you had a squadron of white stars, you'd use them. Boy, would you? I would. They'd be hovering over white, uh, Whitehall right now. Um, but the thing is, as a symbol, the undershock are fantastic. I mean, you really wouldn't want them in your armory, in truth. But as a symbol of the honourable warrior knight, uh, Gawain's and the the pure form of martial excellence and operability. They're pretty damn good. And of course with the Mimbari theology being all about threes, you have this wonderful thing of, of yin and yang fusing together and uh, making triangles with your hands and there's a nice difference between the kind of usual headbutting dualism which you so often get in these situations. I think there's a quote at one point where uh, probably Delenn says that they're not there to create the peace, they're there to keep the peace. And that there's always talking about them being on the boundaries, on the borders. In a sense, they are, in fact, the liminal police. They stop yin and yang from tilting too far out of balance and they're quite happy to nick techniques from either. They'll go in with all smiles and mystical pronouncements on one end but at the other end, they'll smile, swing and smack you in the chops with a Denbok.
0: But am I wrong in recalling that you were, uh, I would say, LARPing? But, um...
1: There was a group in the late 90s who called themselves the International and Society. And it was basically the same kind of vibe, and I'm sure we'll get back to this one later, that led some people to want to become Jedi Knights that they saw something in that spirituality in that presentation and wanted to do something that idealistic in the real world. And they were mostly a bunch of um, white Silicon Valley kids. Nice guys, I went out to, to meet them once. And none of them with any combat experience at all. And the fact that I was the closest they could get is kind of hilarious because I've done a bit of martial arts and a bit of bodyguarding and real, not any military experience whatsoever. So, of course, I ended up being Ranger One, just because they didn't have anything better. And we bugged around this for a couple of years, and it was like herding cats. It truly was. Uh, and the thing is, I'm really relieved that that's all it was, because they managed to last until about the middle to end of 2001 as an organisation. And you can imagine what how a military group want to in, use force to preserve the peace in areas where America has no judicial interest could produce at the end of that year so but it was, it was it was yeah it was an interesting point of of seeing that thing where people want to take some fictional idealized thing and make it concrete, and the spirit of doing that is lovely and very very really effective
0: and now we 've got the Opposite or the not the opposite, the um, I guess the completion of that idea with the, the bro Jedi gyms, yes,
1: and that's again kind of awesome. It all, I mean, it goes back to 1977 when people just looked at it and it was, they saw the Jedi and thought, well, fuck me, I want to be one of those. Um, and the interesting thing is that Lucas did kind of do that deliberately, there's a bit. I managed to find a quote when I was researching the um, article on hyperreal religion for Dark Law, where Lucas was saying that he deliberately put the force in as a way of kind of stimulating young people's interest in spirituality, and he wanted to make it non-specific. He didn't want to have any particular religion in there. He just wanted them... I think the, the line is, he wanted them to become fascinated by the mystery. And the next line is, I never wanted to start a
0: religion. Oh, well. So that kind of brings us to Slenderman. Yeah, go on. Now, you did the whole how to fight Slenderman thing. Would a hyper-religious figure do better against a hyper-religious horror?
1: That was always my theory. I mean, when I, I wrote the piece, there's a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek, but I do have a background in having done sort of occult protection things for people who have been cursed or hexed or whatever. So i have some form in breaking curses and fighting magical attacks in, in that sense. And it just seemed to me that if you're fighting a fictional entity, your best bet is to use a different fictional entity. Now, of course, the problem with fighting Slenderman is it's part of the canon that he can't be killed. That was established incredibly early on. I mean, like within the first couple of weeks of the original Something Awful thread on which the the first photoshops appeared is that they established canonically he can't be killed. But you can get rid of a particular instance of Slender Man. Um, And so my thought was you can use classical magical techniques tailored to fit him. But the technique which I always like to use is what you do is you use a countervalent fictional hyperreal form in a method which I call the Oops! Batman technique, as in, Oi! Slendy! Who's that behind you? Oops! Batman! And it's part of Batman's canon that he has a plan for everything. So you just throw them at each other and let them fight. But again, the trick here is you're not treating either of them as capital R real. But then again, if, if, if you're the kind of madman that I am, you don't really treat much as being capital R or real, real anyway. Uh, the standard joke there is consensus reality, not that much of a consensus and not all that real either. So
0: just as a, as a side note, why do you think we've had the religion of Jedi and not the religion of Batman? There have been
1: elements of Batman, but the thing is... <laughs> To quote the Simpsons, Batman is a scientist. A Jedi is a mystical warrior. The same, same as with the Rangers. There is an inherent mysticism to them. Where there isn't with Bat. I mean, certain people have tried. Good heavens, one of them was Grant Morrison. Small, coincidental world. Uh, but when he did the idea of um, Batman having actually directly drawn on shamanic um, Bat gods at some point, it didn't quite fit. Because that kind of weakens the idea that Batman is a self-made man. That's always a great part of the mythology. That's that's the, the fiction at his heart, is that, you know, every boy thinks, oh, if I was traumatised in that way, and if I had billions and, and the time to do it, I could be Batman. That's, that's the myth that's being sold here, is that he's universal in that sense, that he's the not-superpowered, not-mystical hero. And... I I mean, there's been some good books. There was a a rabbi wrote an excellent book called Wisdom from Batcave, in which he used him as as a teaching figure. Uh, That that was beautifully done. Um, But as, I mean, I do occasionally do a bit of Batman worship in the sense of the spirit of righteous vengeance. I mean, he's he's on my altar. I particularly use um, a picture from the Andrew Vax book, Batman The Ultimate Evil. Vax being an American lawyer who wrote very hardcore pulp fiction in order to um, both fund and kind of um, preach about his campaign against child abuse. And very righteous man, brilliant writer. And they actually got him to write a Batman book, which was basically Batman versus international child abusers and choreographers. And well worth a read. I'm not going to spoil that one, but. Readers go out and they get that. But, again, you, you can take him as as the the, the the spirit of the night which comes out and wreaks, again, it's righteous vengeance. He beats the bad guys. Um, so he can be seen as, as as a spirit, as an intercessor, but not really something I think most people would worship as so much as Corwin. Cool. And again, and there's a parallel to High John the Conqueror. You don't worship John. You just ask for his help. Also from Nightsabers.
0: Yeah. yeah, or the um, I can never pronounce it the the batons in Babylon 5 what are they called? Denbock
1: there's a long experience of people trying to actually make physical versions of those that work Uh, it's easy enough to get an extending baton and make a big one getting them to close at the touch of a button really, really difficult technological feat which is why they had to do it in CGI
0: My personal favorite from the Babylon 5 series was the Techno Mages. Oh, yeah. Have they, has there been any actual hyper real magical tradition to create them? There
1: have always been Techno Mages. There have been people working with um, kit and, and computer programs, and they did inspire quite a few people in, in that line. They didn't take off as, as a kind of separate thing because there was already, yeah. Um, technosis, techno-shamanism was still around. Um, oh, his name escapes me, but, um, you yeah, know, lovely guy, wrote a good book on that.
0: And techno-paganism.
1: Yeah, that's it. Uh, so that, that's kind of always been around ever since, you know, we've had the tech. And, and the pagans tend to be quite early adopters of um, particularly comms tech. I mean, if you look at the really early bulletin boards and the early ARPANET stuff, you know, all pagan was definitely representing. Um, I've talked about this one before, but there's this kind of interesting Venn diagram where you look at people interested in alternate religions, um, alternate sexualities, BDSMers, trans people, uh, tabletop and live-action role-play gamers, and you draw the Venn diagram of that, and there's certain people for which it's down near a circle. And generally, if you're into one or two of those, you'll be into at least three or four of the others as well. So there's always been that kind of overlay between the science fiction fans and the pagans and the alt culture folk. And once they found the way they can actually talk to each other, and you know, you can you can then put up really nice sigil uh, screensavers, uh, play all sorts of stuff with um, ambient sound things in rituals. Um, the technology lends itself very nicely to magic without having to quote Arthur C. Clarke at all, though we do.
0: Okay, so here's a question I have here as a, as a free consult to the audience. When we're talking about using the Chaos Magic technique of, of putting on fictional masks or, you know, what's the best technique to deal with the problem of the, of the cosmic horror, of the, of the Lovecraftian scenario of trying to see the world as it truly is. <laughs> mm. You know, in, in 25 words or less.
1: That, it's, it's 25 words or less, the chapel perilous. You either come out <laughs> agnostic or paranoid. In most cases, paranoid. Again, cosmic horror is just one, for me, it's just one set of filters. Why does the reaction have to be horror and not awe? It's like an old Spider Robinson thing. He wrote a series of books about um, once the technology comes, we can directly stimulate the pleasure center of the brain. Then that is, by definition, the most addictive drug Humanity has ever created, but it could have interesting other knock-on side effects with the mind and so on and so forth. But he pointed out that you could get exactly the same physiological results from overstimulating the pain centres of the brain. And that reminds me of an old Crowley bit about how if it's possible to train the human mind to experience every sensation as orgasm, why wouldn't you? So I think the idea of that seeing the cosmos as it truly is, as, as this vast, implacable thing, is a choice, and that if you tend towards the um, the depressive and the cynical and and so on, you can absolutely model that. There is more than enough evidence for you to go. Look, this is just self-evident, and fail your sand model, or you can go. It is that huge. It is that implacable. But we're still here. Yeah, the, 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 they might be tiny little flashes of light, but like Rust Cole said, the light's winning.
0: I was just about to quote that, yeah. I mean, he's very much the embodiment of the, the cosmic horror hero, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But you, you can stay there. But the thing is, why would you? <laughs> and I think there's, there's a sense of, of, of that underlying acceptance of the unpleasantness of reality. In an awful lot of the um, hardcore skeptical atheists. Whereas they might go on about, oh no, we find that the universe is, is, is beautiful and delightful as it is, and we don't need any woo woo to, to make it something that we take delight in. But I'm not really sure they take that much delight in it, uh, not as much as they take delight in thinking they're right. But yeah, but ultimately, if you're going to meddle with that kind of magic, there will be very dark places. Uh, the teaching, and again, we're going back to dear Paul Wilson on this because he, he kind of worked the early book on it, is that the only way you come out of the chapel perilous is to be able to face everything you fear in the absolute literal sense of looking in the eye. You don't necessarily even have to come to terms with it in every time, but you have to be able to face it. Your worst parts the things that scare you the most because that's what will be thrown at you now whether or not this is a test the universe gives you to see if you are worthy or just a sensible survival mechanism in the face of something your physiology and neurology just can't handle i'm not qualified to say um it works in either model but you know some people like it there. Some people can a- can actually go into that darkness and stay there, and it not destroy them. And I wouldn't want them out
0: for tea. That's the thing, isn't it? Rust Colley's line that you know he's not good at parties.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's like you know.
0: <laughs> is there a is there a more is there a bridge? Is there a another character mask between Rust and everyday Joe? Oh, there, there can be. Um, I mean, the same thing, you don't, you don't want to hang out with John Constantine either, right? Well, you could go for a beer with him
1: and you could, you could kind of hang out in that sense. But as I say, you wouldn't want him for a mate because bad things happen to John's mates. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's always the... It's the mask that fits you. It's the thing, I mean, I could make a suggestion of um, there's a lovely character in uh, Kate Griffin's series of urban fantasies set in a kind of parallel mystical London, which is fantastic stuff. Um, There's a uh, character called Sharon Lee, L.I., who is a London girl of Chinese extraction, who basically discovers that she's a shaman. And she's a sweetheart, and she's kind of a go-getter, and she's read all the self-help books she can because she's a bit insecure. But she's very smart, very candid, very streetwise young woman. Um, So when she becomes a shaman, she interprets it through all those self-help books and uses those to build her mask. The trick is to either find one off the rack that really fits you, or you get a whole bunch of them and you smash them up and you decoupage them until it's something that both fits you and works. And I think most of us do that. I think if we took an honest look at our personas, they're kind of Frankenstein's monsters of tropes we picked up from other people, things our parents said, things we learned at school, our religion, if that was important to us, um, the things we saw on the telly that inspired us. And... I have a distrust of people who just go for one off the rack uh, because I think what they're doing to carry this metaphor until it falls absolutely flat on its face is that they're contorting their own face to fit the mask mm-hmm. as opposed to making the mask fit them. But, yeah, Sharon Lee, the first one in the entire sequence, she doesn't come along to about the fifth book, is called mm-hmm. A Madness of Angels. Uh, the first one with her, I think... No, um... No, can't remember. But yeah, start there. Kate Griffin, she also writes as Claire North, one of the best fantasy writers we've got in Britain these days.
0: So extrapolating from the personal to the cultural, I guess, would, would you have any... Pro-
1: the personal is always cultural, because yeah, God damn yeah. way bloody political.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm saying in terms of constructing a personal mythology versus inventing a hyper-religion, mm. What would be the the pro tips you'd have, the, the do's and don'ts from your extensive 40? The,
1: the big difference is the jump from one to many, because building one that fits you is great, but then running it up the flagpole and seeing who else salutes it, that's the scary point. And it's absolutely fair enough for people to go, no, that's just bollocks, because to most people it will be. But there will be some people to whom it does connect and you can say something directly. I think it's one of the notable things about how the hyperreal religions have come up so far is they don't tend to be that hierarchical. I mean, we don't have a Pope of the Jedi. I mean, there's, there's a few lads who, who like you know, just for reasons of logistics, are, are kind of at the top and sort of out recruitment and, and training, all that kind of stuff, and they've done some martial arts and they've been in, in it for a while. So there's a kind of sense of the self-elected tribal elder going on there, but the, yeah, I'm, I'm, I find it it's it's interesting that they develop and they can develop these deep belief systems, but without having to have that much of a clergy, that much of a top-down structure. So yeah, I mean the thing is you you, you build your model for yourself, and again you bear in mind that as if Neil is as if real, not as real thing. That so, yeah, this, this is just. My personal set of biases. This is the fiction suit I've built. It probably won't fit you. But if you like bits, I'll let you feel the schmutter.
0: Is um, the Na'vi thing still going? I mean, kind of up and down. I'm not
1: deeply plugged into the Otherkin community. I kind of scan an eye over every now and then because there is... Fascinating and relevant stuff going on there. But the, there, I think there are still Navi Otherkin out there, and they're desperately awaiting the, the Avatar sequels, obviously, which then breaks us in, into the whole Otherkin aspect, which is, a, again, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, the, the idea that people are able to say, I don't think my soul is human. and I've, I've known people who have identified as, as non-human soul since before the term Otherkin. Uh, was coined, I mean, i know people who are doing this in fandom since the early 80s, still are, lovely folk. I see it as a developmental stage in building your fiction suit, that you, you try on one and you go, being a human kind of sucks. I don't want to be like that, I don't want to be like them. I feel like I'm a wolf, I feel like I'm a dragon. And that's very exciting, and, and powerful, and... And you can inhabit that, and you can absolutely go into that like you can any other belief system. But I don't think staying there is necessarily the right move. Or at least if you're going to do that, try a few on. Again, it comes down to Crowley, as, as so much of um, post-20th century occultism does. That his trick was you, you, you pick a god, you worship that god, absolutely, you do all the right ritual techniques, you wear the right clothes, you burn the right incenses. You do this until you contact the god. Then you stop, you bin it, and then you start again with another god. You do this three or four times until you get the point. Now, of course, some people would say that that, that's going against it. Once you find the right one, once you find what genuinely is, what speaks to your soul, you should stick with it. And absolutely a case can be made for that. But then you, you look at the other king community and you see the schisms. You see the, the the schisms between the people who say that they are a generic form, a Tolkien elf, getting quite shirty with the ones who say, oh, I'm the reincarnation of Neo, which you absolutely get. And then you get those people getting pissy with the ones who are drawing on other ones, and, and it, it splits down and it becomes an us and them kind of deal. When... You could look at it and say that the technique is sound, That absolute surrender to a non ordinary form of consciousness is such a powerful and useful thing. Why do you stop there yeah um what's the other one Godkin that's the new one that's been on for a couple of years. People who identify as being incarnations of gods, oh, so no you problems
0: there then, so um, yeah. What's the new um, Gillian-McKelvey comic called again? Hmm? Didn't hear it, sir. gillian comic. Oh, The Wicked and the Divine. Yes. That, like... That's a good book. That's a fun book. Took off really hardcore, like, in terms of fandom and... and it's,
1: fandom. Treme- it's tremendous fun. I'm still waiting far more fervently for Phonogram 3, because Phonogram really hit me where I lived. Literally, because it was set in the part of Bristol I was living in when it was published. Uh, that whole bit at the end of Volume 1, uh, kid, kid With Knife's run to the tune of Wolf Like Me, that was literally five minutes from where I used to live. So that's like really powerful for me. I use a lot of music in Magic as well to bring up those kind of emotional things. For me, it tends to be rock. God help me, often prog. Yeah, yeah, it's still that old. Um, whereas for for Jamie, it's pop songs. But again, you've got that that immediacy of of, of taking something and really not using it for what it was at all intended. Though there's always been that crossover into music and the, and the occult, um, I would defy you to say that Teenage Kicks was written as a spell to incarnate teenage manhood. It works bloody well as one. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and Wicked and Divine is, is well worth your attention. And, yeah, the, the basic setup on that, for those viewers who have not seen it, is that every 90 years or so there was a cycle where 12 gods are incarnated in human form. Some poor human just literally wakes up and, bang, there's a god in them. And they live for two years, and they create art, and then they die. And this happens on a cyclical scale, and we've hit that point now where they're starting to reappear. And it tells the story of, of how each of them turns up. And they do some clever things there. They don't go for many of the really obvious gods, and they don't always incarnate in the gender which you th- might think they should which is
0: really canny of them uh,
1: it, it, yeah, it's yeah it's, it's a fascinating examination of, of, of that crossover of celebrity and godhood
0: Are you reading um,
1: God is Dead from Avatar? I kind of stocked around issue 24 um, that hit the peak with the Alan Moore guest story which if you haven't seen it is Alan Moore goes on stage with Glycon in the full glow.
0: Oh holy shit
1: it's fucking brilliant. It's one of the best expressions of what Alan Moore is going on about when he talks about magic. And it is literally him doing a stand-up routine with Glycon as his ventriloquist doll. In front of an audience of gods. It's brilliant. That's the one to...
0: Oh my god.
1: That makes the entire series great. The rest of it, not so much.
0: Cthulhu rocks up there, right? Sorry, Doesn't Cthulhu rock up?
1: Not at the point where I stopped reading. It was all pretty much the, your standard pantheons. Okay. There wasn't too much in the okay. lovely tentacles there. Okay.
0: Uh, which I
1: think would have been way more interesting <laughs> than the direction they did go. It just ended up as kind of like a war between the mortal beings and, and chopped up usually topless female women stuck in the middle. It just didn't sit well with me, really. But th- that and the issue is definitely the one. It was, um, there was a two-issue thing. Uh, one was called Alpha and the other one was called Omega. I think it was in the Alpha issue, but that's fun to read. It you, stands alone completely fine with everything else.
0: Yeah, I've got them literally sitting in my feet. I haven't got around to it yet.
1: Well, oh, that's definitely much it's, it's terrible. Once you've heard Alan Moore speak, you, you know, there's this awful tendency when you quote, you just, you just kind of fall into the forest. And It is hypnotic. Uh, it was at the, the Cosmic Sugar Festival in November they had the first showing of the video of the Moon and Serpent Grand Egyptian Theatre of Marvels. Right. Um, I think it was Alastair Frewish found a video copy of it that had been made and never been shown before. So I was sitting there watching that with um, Melinda Gebby and Leah Moore. And it was astonishing. It, it's one of the most powerful pieces of magic I've ever seen, and it really does just sort of punch its way out of the screen at what Alan was doing there. It. It's magnificent. I'm hoping that they can get the clearances and actually put that online or sell it as a DVD or something, because it's stunning.
0: I'd never question Alan more.
1: Yeah, for all, all those people who think that Alan's attitude to magic is, is kind of just sort of intellectual and, and, and playing with it in, in, in words, he's a fucking shaman. You see him stand there and do the business.
0: Yeah, I need to reread Prometheus.
1: hmm uh, that always stands we look
0: moving from Promethea to Prometheus would you ever see the actual so we've got we've got the bros doing the Jedi Bros bras mm. will will we ever see because I've met some of the hardcore transhumanists who are massive bodybuilder fans yeah like capital T, Silicon Valley, do you think we'll see engineers emerge as such?
1: I think that there are people who will... The urge to externalise what you feel is your inner self is one we've always had. This is why we've got TATs and Bodmods. And, of course, the technology for Bodmod at this point here... um, I, I, I met the Enigma, the guy who has the um, jigsaw stuff, He's a lovely guy. Um, and the, the, the people who were doing, like, the full-blown transformation into, God, I saw him a couple of weeks ago. He was turning himself into the Red Skull. Uh, I think he was a Brazilian chap. And he'd actually had the cartilage on his nose removed after having his skin red. And he'd gone that far. So for for someone to actually, I mean... It, it's a trivial thing. I mean, you've certainly seen uh, young women get boob jobs in order to make their cosplays more effective. This is hardly unknown. Um, so I, what I can imagine someone, my personally, my, my views on, on, for me, this as a film. Oh, um, dear me, why? Um, but I could see how someone could actually go the thing, and, and that engineer look, that kind of sculpted thing, I could, I could see someone... With enough money and time and high pain threshold, going for that, and it would be kind of lovely. I'd really worry if they got to DNA research.
0: That's that's my next question. That's that's where the time and money thing and the transhumanism thing. Because CRISPR, you've read about the advances they're making with the CRISPR technology, right? Uh, yeah. That's like if those guys start. Like we're already at the. Biohackers giving themselves night vision by injecting their eyes, right? Yeah. Which is eyedropper, eyedropper um, chlorophyll, chlorophyll mm. stuff. But, like, in terms of what's next, like, what's the edge of hyperreal self-transformation? Yeah, I mean, I, at
1: some point... I would not be surprised if somebody tries to actually give themselves full blown magical upgrades through physiological means. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the interesting thing about the, the, the boosting the um, ultraviolet wavelength after you've climbed yourself to a diet of soylent and then adding certain nutrients. Once well, you've got people who've, who've got soylent as their baseline so they can absolutely control their diet. Um then you, you can fuck around with that to a very interesting degree. And you know, I can imagine someone then trying to implant skin devices connected to small magnets and trying to place them around their skull in order to induce Persinger fields. So that mm-hmm. they've got the god helmet built into their head all the time, or at least with an on off switch, so they can just, you know, flick a switch and give themselves a mystical experience by demand. And then, of course, it's just a matter of what you're focusing on when you have the mystical experience. Um, It all comes down to that, again, the Wilson model, the idea of imprint vulnerability, the idea that all shamanic experiences are basically techniques to shock the brain into a point where it's not physical, but psychological plasticity as such that you imprint like a baby chick on a ping-pong ball. That if you choose what you're going to imprint, beforehand or if you have someone choose it for you that's when you can get the the full shamanic hit but again the thing there is that model becomes part of you and because it's imprinted rather than just learned it's really really hard to shift until the next shock comes along this is of course the kind of thing that lsd and and, and other drugs like that are notoriously good at this is why they have such good form on things like helping people do alcoholism i mean leary's original studies with LSD. Was you could do one guided trip and you could cure alcoholism. Uh, for some reason, this didn't catch on because it's not like there's money in alcoholism or anything. But yeah, I, 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 we're at the point where it's it's kind of almost it's like an offshoot of the techno same kind of levels of technology that lead to fourth and fifth generation warfare using the John Wulf models. Um, the idea of the superpowered super individual who can effectively conduct an entire war as a non-state actor using kit off the shelf and and maybe a couple of mates and some fertiliser or whatever. Um, Now, there's no reason why you can't use that technology just for warfare. You can sure as hell use it for religion. Now, whether religion is a continuation of warfare by other means or vice versa comes down to when you're preaching to other people. But if you're doing it to yourself, if you're treating yourself as your own testbed, then that's entirely viable. I mean, one of my core metaphors, one of the, the big imprints of my life, was seeing altered states when I was 16. It first came out of the pictures. And again, there was that idea of, you had the literal mad scientist, but he didn't want to change the world. He wanted to change himself. He wanted to change himself into a being which could directly perceive God. So he chucked himself in an isolation tank, did a fuckload of magic mushrooms, and um, everybody remembers it where he comes out as an ape. But it's the bit at the end where he's falling into himself. And he falls into cosmic horror, interestingly. He is, in fact, being destroyed by the cosmic horror at the heart of everything. And he basically starts to fall apart, and it looks like he might actually take the universe with him. Until his wife who has been incredibly loyal for this. I mean, they did divorce and split up, but she's already pulled him out once. And he says, the pain and the fear is too great and I'm falling in unfolding it, and he starts to burn. And and transform himself. And his wife played by the illustrious and exquisite Blair Brown from Fringe shouts out to him you made it real, you can make it unreal. If you love me defy it. And he does for her. Perfect love doth cast out fear. And on that
0: note da da da! (laughs) (laughs) Have you read what's the the Druids book that Gordon likes? Um
1: Way of Weird, Brian Bates?
0: the one about pick oil. Um,
1: don't I don't tend to head totally to towards a really. Might be John Greer. He's done a lot of stuff on that.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: Not yet. I've been meaning to. I mean, I've, re- I've read some of his blog entries, and um, he's, he's, he's a smart and canny one. But I, I, I get the same kind of itch off of him as I do off of, um, like I did from Peter Gray, in Apocalyptic Witchcraft of the, the the smell of the Luddite fantasist, the idea of the, the, the pecolic golden age. And, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there is no question that we are kind of fucking up the environment through bad technological usage. But to say that this is unnatural, I think, is a category error. I think it's a really bad mistake to make. Um, and it's an argument that you and I as grinders have always had with other people and... Yeah, you know, we we've, we've had this one, and you know, Emily's mentioned this passionately too. That we've been cyborgs ever since we invented language. Uh, again, that it, that it's not a dualistic nature versus technology. And they're also talking about a very narrow band of range of technologies of the last two hundred years or so. They're fine with fire. They tend to be fine with the wheel. They're also pretty good with crop rotation. But they absolutely have a, you know a, a strong position to make, and it's important to have people who are ma- making those polemic warnings on, on behalf of the survivability of the species. But I think there's a terrible arrogance in assuming that this is what Mother Nature wants because, honestly, I don't think Damekind Kind gives a shit. Not really. Not about us. Not on that level. We're, we're just somewhat clever monkeys. You know, we're not the whole of creation. If we fuck it up that badly, it'll start again with cockroaches and something else will come along.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. Um... The Blood of the Earth. Mm, that's the one. Yeah, I still haven't read it, and it, it's very high on my to-do list. One of the... um, the, the Sorry, the point I was trying to get to is that mm? the one of the positive aspects of the book, let's put it that way, uh, he, he talks about as the collapse, and he, he views it all from the Pico perspective, as as you're saying, but as the civilizational collapse comes, he sees the emergence of sort of... Neo fascist figures and hyper religious figures emerging? That's
1: interesting and not at all implausible.
0: So, what I'm the dots I'm joining are like a self made pseudo engineer transhumanist guy who would appear to the more mundane people as almost like the guy from The Watchmen, like completely techno. Mm. He becomes his own Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, I was, no, the other one. Oh no, no, uh, Osmandius. Yes, Osmandius. Again, you, the, the 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 self-made superhero. Yes, Liter- but in this case, literally self-made mm. with the magnets and the whatever would be interesting and.
1: The question then is: is how good they are at manipulating those religious pressures? Um, did you see the most recent um, what was it Pew study on religious trends? came out last week Well they predict the world will actually be getting more religious in 2050 rather than less. That Though there will be a fall in levels of Christianity in the West it's going to rise drastically everywhere else. That we're still going to be living in effectively a, a mostly Judeo-Christian Islamic world and that the smaller tiny religions are such a small percentage that they barely show up in their survey. And I think that that Again, they're, they're judging by certain ongoing trends, since that's what they draw their numbers on. But I think that there is the possibility for the breakout, hyperreal black swan to completely fuck that equation up. Or for someone from one of those religions to sufficiently nick the good stuff from the, the, the hyperreal, from pop culture, and wield it to their own sense. I mean, we already have things like there's the, um, there's a couple of lads involved in the Russian-Ukrainian wars, who have been science fiction writers for years. Uh, it, it's almost like they're trying to put their SS scripts into, into direct reality, and, you know, they have um, troops and tanks. So, again, what it comes down to is, is we underestimate the importance of fiction to our peril, I mean, whether it's manifest in, in, in the particular hyperreal forms. And opposite that, is the awful human habit. And this is, if there's anything I preach against, it's the idea that there is anything in human affairs which is pure, that that is absolutely true. I mean, postmodernism is a mess as a philosophy. It does tend towards the awfully nihilistic. But I see it as, as kind of a reset button. The one good thing it did give us is the abandonment of the single objective, grand narrative, ultimate truth. You can have models. I mean, there's certain physical stuff that underneath it all doesn't change. As the saying goes, it doesn't matter how hard you're tripping, all cars continue to be real. So there's a certain phenomenological level in which you can't or you, know, you can't ignore gravity unless you're really, really lucky and very exceptional circumstances and those are rare and you don't want to rely on them. But other than that, the rest is a series of models. You can look at, How effective certain scientific models are and say, yeah, you might need a bit of tweaking in evolution, but it sure as hell a better fucking model than, you know, most Christian alleged science around um, the supposed rejection of evolution. There is no better model for what's happening to the world's climate than the pollution climate change models we have. There may be other stuff mixed in, there may be some other cycle stuff going on, but we are measurably fucking up the environment by heavy industrialisation. Yes, you could say that's just a model that's a theory, but it's the best one we've got, and really, beyond tweaking, that one's proven. So outside of really obvious physical stuff like that, which, again, people are managing to find objections to on a religious basis because they have the one true truth. And God's told them that if they throw a snowball in Congress, that proves there's no global warming and other such bollocks because they've put the symbol above the real. And the trick is to never let yourself get trapped in just one set of symbols. That's insane. That's like watching one TV show and saying that all other TV is irrelevant, reading one novel, singing one song. That's a very empty world, and you can't learn from anyone else that way. Once you say that my belief is pure and absolute, it can't change, it's static. It ends up being like, like all those planets Kirk and Spock and everybody visited in classic Trek where the culture picked one thing and stuck with it. You know, the Nazi planet, the 1920s Chicago planet. And they just get stuck there until there's an outside intervention, until there's an external shock which nudges them out of it and lets them actually start to evolve again. And I think that's the thing which we have to deal with as a species is everybody has their own stories, everybody has their own paths, beliefs, The trick is to actually get along with them, Uh, that kind of universal cosmopolitanism. The way we manage to live in heavily urban environments without tearing each other apart, like rats shoved into too small a cage, is because, for the most part, it's live and let live. You go, oh, you, you, you believe that? That's fine. It very rarely leads to violence, except that I think there is an increase of that dualism, of us and them. And the trick is to... Believe in yourself and your own thing enough for it to work for you, but not so much that it will turn around and reject new information just because it's different from yours. Sermon over.
0: That, that's pretty good. Um, we might have to wrap it up at this point. Okey-dokey. No, that's a, that's a really good place to end this on. I think. Really? And we will thank you. Absolute pleasure, mate. For your time. Any And that is my good friend, Cat Vincent. So there you go. Humans, algorithms, uplifted species, aliens listening in from the galactic center. How are you? Hey, how's it going out there in deep time? Back to Earth. I thought I'd close out the podcast with a tale, a hyper-real anecdote on constructed reality and authenticity from the heart of Australia. So two weeks ago I was in Coober Pedy in the midst of a two-week do the math, that's a month, road trip with my good friend Wayne and we were in Coober Pedy to launch an expedition into a nuclear wasteland which is a whole other story which I'll get to in good time as soon as I've written it up properly, been busy. So we're in Coober Pedy which you may know from film as Barter Town. Also, as the... we well, wouldn't know it, but it's the location where Pitch Black was filmed. And Pitch Black is one of my favourite films for that B-grade sci-fi heart of mine. And what Cooper Pitty features casually downtown is a crashed spaceship. The spaceship from Pitch Black is just sitting there next to a toilet block. And I've been longing to see that thing for as long as I've known about it, which is about 10 years. And I got to see it! And I took a whole bunch of selfies because I'm a huge nerd. And then by day three we're just like, yeah, there's that spaceship again. Just sitting there. And Cooper is an opal mining town. Everyone's too busy extending their house looking for opals. So when we did a test run out by the Ninko fence, which is one of the world's biggest, it's the world's biggest fence, it's 5,000 kilometers long. But that's one of the locations where they film pitch black, um, when they come out of the spaceship and it's, it's all like glassy black landscape. Now they've been there, I got all this from the the motel manager where we stayed, which just so happened that that's where Vin Diesel and his seven foot tall karate trainer stayed. No, sorry, this was from the librarian in the underground books. I collected tales because that's what I do. So, they go out there and David Toey, the director, is like this this is what is this? Right? What is this? This is terrible. You know, you can't just film in a rubbish dump and they're like, No. No, it's meant to look like this. This is um uh, what was it? Basalt, whatever. Oh he knows he's a geologist. And suddenly it's real and they use it for the for the um for the film. Right? Yeah. What's my other one? Oh, yeah. So, the end of Pitch Black, when um, they are making their escape back into that spaceship that's just sitting there, downtown, in Coober next to the museum, across from the pizza joint. And if you go to the pizza joint, and you yeah. like pizza, I highly recommend. We order it off the menu, because that's what we do. Uh, it was the... It's called the Emblem Pizza, I think? So it's kangaroo and emu sausage, right? Sounds good, right? Swapping out this cranberry sauce for the straight up tomato base. Had like four of those things while we were planning the trip into the nuclear wasteland, because that's what you do. That's what good zone hunting stalkers eat. So the end of Pitch Black. The last day of shooting, it pisses down rain. Now this is the desert, right? This is the place where they also filmed the latest Mad Max. And they had to cancel shooting because it rained. This is a place that never rains, right? So the film is like, well, what do we do? Well, they rewrote the end of the film so that all the um, crazy aliens that are coming out of the termite mounds, which is now my author profile of me next to termite mounds in an alien landscape. They rewrote the script and they used it, right? Ditto, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. All of a sudden, last day of shooting, huge dust storm just rolls in out of nowhere. And they're like, holy shit, right? The dude is already up there in his ornithopter filming. And he's like, well, I'm staying here. I'm getting this footage. This is too good. And that's how mythic scenes in movies accidentally get created. Pure happenstance and chance and the ability to renegotiate on moving territory, which is a good lesson. And also cool facts, bro. Okay, that wraps it up. Um, try and make this more regular from now on, every couple of weeks at least, depending on the whims of fate. Thanks for listening. Cheers. The Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System is sponsored by Lisbeth Action Action Stations. And finally, a word from Shiva.